Are you ready? Uh, can you tell me quick what I'm supposed to do? <laughs> you, you sit there as the person we pull out, pulled off the street. In fact, I'll show you. This is okay. very good. See, in the, in the post-show notes, you see that uh, we are co-hosted by a League of Champions of All Things Medical and a few people we pull off the street. Okay. We pulled you off the street. You were literally pulled off I the street. Literally. We did because... <laughs> Thanks for coming. Yeah. Lisa was here. pulled off the street because... Uh, no one else had the guts to get up at 8 o'clock like Nassar Bakshi, the host. Mm-hmm. So so what I'll do is I'll go ahead and start the intro. And then you'll see. It'll go. You're a journalist. You know what to do. Just wing it. This is Rotations. I'm Dr. Todd Fredericks, Assistant Professor of Family Medicine at Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. And we're continuing on the second half of discussion with Dr. Diaz. This is Nisarg Bakshi, our host. Yes. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Nisarg Bakshi. And as you guys know, I'm a second-year medical student at Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. Uh, and yeah, we're here again with Dr. Diaz to talk about big data uh, and its potential impact on physicians. So thanks for joining us again. Well, nice to be here. Uh, and we also have Lisa, our usual person we pulled off the street, uh, who is a journalist and expert on basically everything. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, so, yeah, can you, just for the listeners who maybe haven't, uh, just to refresh themselves on it, can you define what big data is? Sure. Uh, I, I see big data as the, the, the result of the intersection of advances in computation, advances in methodology, where all of a sudden we're finding ourselves with these huge repositories of data that we hadn't anticipated 10 or 15 years ago. And, and for most of your listeners, I think the example is Facebook. Facebook is amassing tremendous amounts of, of, of data every day, and people are unknowingly leaving their digital breadcrumbs um, all over um, you know, the Internet, so to speak. And so that, that's an example of big data. Um, you know, there are different disciplines that look at it differently. For me, I'm fascinated by big data that results from the unintentional creation of these huge repositories. So even when, um, even when provider systems merge and they keep getting bigger and bigger, you're essentially creating big data because provider system A, B, and C merge together. Now you have a data set that's three times as large as it was before. Um, so that, that, that's how I see big data. Sure. And, and why should physicians and medical students and residents, why should we know what big data is? I think you need to know enough about big data to be a really critical consumer of it. That's one thing. So I think if you're being told a lot of things about big data, uh, and I think that much like any other information, you need to be able to look at it critically and see where the limitations are, where the strengths are. But I think another reason why uh, the physician community should be aware of big data is I really think you should take control of your big data. And I think the only way to do that is to have physicians represented in, in, in the creation, um, manipulation, dissemination of big data. You, you need to be part of it. Sure. And, and last time we talked about this, you mentioned a storm on the horizon, right, where uh, there's a potential for another entity to take over control of that data. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. I, I, I think there's always a potential for, um, how can I say this? The advances in computational techniques, uh, and, and by computational techniques, I mean e- even the way social media is done, I think people would be amazed at how quickly technology is advancing such that if they went to your Facebook site and say that you've been a Facebook user for five years, and you've been talking about this and talking about that, that just the, um, the latent semantic analyses they can do on your text, on the text, can give a pretty accurate picture of where your health status is, where your political status is, 
what your consumer spending is. Um, a, a quick story. There was a, I think he was at Purdue. There was a, a, a researcher at Purdue, and he sort of set this graduate student loose. And she was doing latent semantic analysis, which is basically analyzing strings of narrative data, of stuff that we, you know, these digital breadcrumbs I'm talking about. And so she came up with a model where she could analyze expressions of fear on Facebook. And her model, with over 90% accuracy, based on these expressions of fear, could predict whether the Dow Jones average was going to go up or down three days ahead of time. Wow. They sought patent protection for that model. Okay? I, I think it illustrates how... What's, what's her name? I don't get my hands on it. Yeah, I want to <laughs> invest in that right now. Well, <laughs> well actually, in, in, the, in the private for-profit sector, this is exactly what people are doing. Um, in, um, in, in the marketing world, they're making tremendous advances in this and taking latent semantic analyses and using it to predict buying patterns. And they know it. And they're doing it because of what I gave them unknowingly. That's why I don't have a Facebook page. I have a Facebook page. If you want to friend me, it's fine, but you're not going to get a response. I'm just going to say, oh, yeah, that's nice. Thank you. You know how to find me if you really want to talk to me. It also happens with your exposure to information. So as a a patient, for example, and you're looking up uh, health information online, right, you're going to only be exposed to certain kinds of information based on your past history and what you show, right, your preferences, your biases, you know. So... I wonder, too, in terms of how it affects people's uh, beliefs about the health system or their medical care or the type of treatment they should be seeking. Mm-hmm. You know, vac- the, the vaccination debate, for example. So if you believe one way, you're probably only going to be exposed to information that supports that belief when you're doing Google searches. If you believe the other thing about vaccinations, you'll probably only be exposed to information that's like that um, on the other side. And then what's true, what's not true, that becomes hard to distinguish as well online. That's a, that's a really profound point, is that we are, we are creating these, these hegemonic dichotomies in, in terms of social media patterns. And so, for instance, it, it, really takes, um, it really takes a conscientious person to seek out data that opposes what they view you know, and Todd, you and I have had long conversations about this. We all need to exercise our, our individuality and our, our, our right to think as individuals. At the same time, we also need to embrace the reality that we are social beings and that we can easily be socialized and that the way that we use technology has implications for our socialization that we haven't even begun to understand the, the gravity of, the importance of, uh, you know, it's... Uh, it, it, it is scary, and, and I don't think that the average Joe or Jill out there is really prepared to act so independently that, um, that they're going to be immune to that. How do we increase our protection, I guess? We're giving away all this information about ourselves, um, and how secure is it really? You know, um, it, it was interesting. I was uh, listening to uh, an interview, I think it was on NPR, but they had some kind of tech geek on there, and... Uh, and, and that question was posed. And the guy said in no uncertain terms, he said, look, it's just a matter of resources. If you are using the internet, anything you do on the internet can be hacked. It, it's just a matter of the resources allocated to making that happen. Um, but, um, but at the same time, I, again, it, it, it's complex. I'm not somebody who's going to go off grid you know, and totally cut myself off from social media. 
But at the same time, I'm going to remember the old, you know, the old mafia movies on TV where the guys didn't use telephones. You know, they would, you know, run from house to house to talk in person. I think our society is going to re-embrace some of that kind of stuff. Um, I keep telling my two daughters, you know, learn how to keyboard. But you know what? Um, Mark my word, the old paper and pencil is going to come back into vogue in another five to ten years. Yeah, and we, we've talked a lot about the potential negatives uh, of this approach, right? But what about the positives? Where, where can physicians see benefit in, in this big data? The one place that I think um, there is tremendous benefit is uh, is benchmarking. You know, I've actually advocated for this, and and I've tried at um, at three different academic institutions to do this with with no luck. And that is is that. I really like, um, you, can, you can point to Amazon.com, you can point to Ella Bean. I really love the way that they use data. And, and there's something fundamental there that I think we can learn from. And that is, they make the end consumer the primary consumer of data. So when you think of EMRs, for instance, is the patient really the primary consumer of that data? No. Is the physician the primary consumer of that data? No. The physician, the physician's role in the EMR is to is really um, mandate-driven reporting. Okay, but when you go to Amazon.com, goofy as it may sound, we all do it. That is rich data that we use. It's produced by the consumers and it's used by the consumers to evaluate their purchases. Okay, so um, my family and I were getting ready to go. Um, abroad and we hope to do some birding. So yesterday I was on amazon.com looking for, okay, I don't want to spend $5,000 on a pair of binoculars, but man, what can I get for $150? So I go on to amazon.com. They've got, they've got the star ratings, which provides a nice quantitative rating. And what do they do? They balance it with the opportunity for narrative you know, discussion as well. Imagine that we did that with healthcare data. Imagine that a physician, when talking with their patient said, look, here are... Um, here are your A1C levels or whatever, and I apologize if I'm not getting it right. Here's your BMI. Let's look at how your BMI compares to other males in the Southeast Ohio region, to other males in Ohio, to other males in the U.S. That's where I think the promise of big data is, is that it can heighten people's awareness of, of, of who they are with respect to healthcare, with respect to the, you know, their academic being, you know, by doing these comparative benchmarks to the broader population. But that's, that's relatively simple data, you know, and it's simple data, but what's hard about it is getting our systems to actually embrace the, that use of data. Yeah, absolutely. And, and kind of going off that, um, you know, we, we're going to have a show here soon talking about dogma in medicine, right? Uh, an accepted belief that everyone uh, sort of just embraces uh, without questioning it. And, you know, Dr. Fredericks and I have talked about this and how that's dangerous, right? There, there's always things that change, things that we don't know or things that we've gotten wrong. So, do you think then that having that big data, that central just supply of, of what we look at, would that contribute to a sort of groupthink among physicians? Yeah, I, um, I think the problem of groupthink is, is a real danger. And I think that um, it, the way to deal with groupthink is, number one, is that we always need to, to continue to teach people to be critical thinkers. And we have a hard time producing a society where not only are people critical thinkers, that they learn to appreciate people who have a view, a point of view that's very different than theirs. And that's one thing that needs to be done to avoid the groupthink. Um, another thing, too, is that if you ever have somebody come to you with a data-related initiative and they describe it as being easy, simple, or what have you, um, I've got three words for you. Run, forest, run. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I can't say that enough, is that be particularly wary of people who describe 
the the data revolution or any facets of it in in highly simplified terms. And I think that that's the way that you you begin to battle that that groupthink approach. A question that comes to mind is like, where you know, what sort of where's this data coming from? Like, who's it really representing? Is it just kind of representing this these big populations like? you know, where these big data studies take place, or is it really going to represent the entire population? Like, are we going to get the full picture, or is it just going to be uh, sort of where these large research institutions are? That's an excellent question. There is There are a lot of measurement issues germane to data in terms of how data are collected. Are they really representative? Um, so, for instance, in my research, I use a lot uh, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's uh, countyhealthrankings.org you know, where they will tell you, what is a, what is a teen birth rate um, in, in, say, Athens County, Ohio? But that's not based on complete data. That's based on purposive sampling. Um, so, again, there's no easy answer. We need, to be, we need to be critical consumers of how data are collected in the first place. I think that's interesting, too, and just our perspective and how we interpret and see data. So, uh, for example, my mom, who is dying of cancer and they've got different treatment options that they keep presenting as a way to extend her life expectancy. But, right, that's an average and it's not a census. It's not every, you are definitely going to live. So like my dad's interpretation of it is, well, that's the average, which means she's probably going to go longer. So this looks like a great treatment option versus say, um, say, some people who might look at it and say, well, it's a maximum of this amount, which is actually the average, and therefore, why should we continue doing this? We should stop the treatment for quality of life. So it's just, again, our we look at these numbers that are supposed to be there to help us make decisions and medical decisions, and yet we're, how our frame of mind and our view of the world, right, we're going to interpret that information a little bit differently. Yeah, and I, I actually worry about... Um Man, I want to. Uh, let me just say it. I, and I, I, in saying this, I know it might sound a little crass, but I think one of the things we struggle with in the data revolution is that the lack of knowledge people have about really understanding data. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, NateSilvers538.com. They they were predicting towards the very end mm-hmm. that President Trump had a had a one in three chance of winning, mm-hmm. and so when he won the presidency, uh, the presidential election rather, he you know, a lot of critics came out and said, oh, you were totally wrong. And, and as a statistician, I look and I say, no, he wasn't totally wrong. One out of three is a very good odds of something occurring. But the average Joe doesn't, doesn't really have an understanding of, of that probabilistic thinking. And that's Except why, in baseball, where if a, someone's batting 333, they they're going to be like, holy cow, sign him up, right? Right, exactly. Isn't that weird? There's it, no, they don't make that distinction because they don't understand the correlation. And the point there, Todd, is that it, it, just like anything else, it's context-based. Context impacts, you know, when you're talking about, you know, cancer survival rates. You know, it, it's all context-based. Um, as, as a country, we need to face the fact that we need to educate ourselves about some of these foundational principles that impact how we view the world. You know, um, and how can people do that? You know, wh- wh- what are some resources that you suggest? Um, one of the one of the resources I suggest is that number one, people really play off of their interest in sports, mm-hmm. and to really see that those same principles and, and that same passion by which we can so objectively view data and sports, that we also apply it to how we view um, our child's performance on a standardized test in school. And that we also take those same principles and apply it to, um, you know, our legislators' voting records, uh, what have you. 
last episode we talked about potential political intervention. Um, what's what's the role that you see of government in big data? You know, where where do you see in terms of regulation or lack thereof? How can we prevent the storm from happening from uh, a government point of view? I would be wary of making the government too intrusive in big data. And I and I what I would prefer and what I see the role is that the government is a consumer of big data just like other entities are. Um, I I am not a um, I'm not one of these people who would say that the government should not look at big data at all. Um, I think they do. I think the military uses big data. They they use data to inform um, their high stakes decision making. And so there's a role for big data in government. But I don't think that we should wait for government to do big data for us. Big data is occurring whether we like it or not. And to be honest, um, some of the greatest innovations in big data are coming from the private sector. Um, and, and in some of the most banal contexts, like the marketing of consumer goods, people in marketing are doing excellent work in big data, excellent work. And we shouldn't snub our noses at them. And so that's a, that's a rich source for it. But I, I personally would be wary about the government having a role in regulating big data. I, mm-hmm. I think that consumers need to take the responsibility to be critical consumers of, of big data. Sure. That just kind of uh, gives me that big brother kind of fear, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, if, if we are going the private sector route, uh, then how do you prevent what we talked about with that takeover of data, right? Like, where do you find that balance? Well, that's, that's a, you could spend hours on that question. Um, I really believe, like a lot of other things, is that we, uh, you know, and I, I was born in a communist country. So I, with that in mind, we are given the mechanisms here in this country to make sure that government doesn't run amok, that corporations don't run amok, that, that public entities don't run amok. And I think that the basis for that is, is that you need to have an informed, critical citizenry. And so my, where I can make a difference as an educator um, until the day I die is to rail to people that, look, you know, data may seem boring, but it has some really foundational you know, implications for our society, and we should continue to look at that. And that's, um, that's sort of my professional identity. I, I am most fascinated by data in terms of its role in defining who we are as individuals in a society more so than I am in the actual results. And I know that that may sound uh, esoteric, but, you know, um, in, a lot of the, in a lot of the research studies that colleagues pull me into, I, I'll be honest with you, I am much more fascinated by the implications for how people use data than the actual results of the data analysis creating the perfect, most efficient way to integrate big data into medicine. So what, what are some ways that we can uh, integrate that? In my mind, again, and, and I want to reiterate this uh, quite strongly, is, is that we need to fight tooth and nail to make it such that the data that we collect in healthcare really center around that relationship between the healthcare provider and the patient. And that... Um, you know, when we're making difficult decisions about, oh, we'd love to collect 200 data points, but we only have time and space for five, mm-hmm. that what, what drives that decision about which five data points to collect needs to be based on what can help that, that patient and physician relationship. Um, so I, I think that's one thing. I think another characteristic of, of data is that it also needs to satisfy a diversity of levels of aggregation, you know, we, I think we talked last time about levels of aggregation, that 
people see data aggregated at a, at a different place. Um, you know, recently, um, you know, we, we had in remembrance the, uh, the, the landings at D-Day. And, and I always tell people to try to give them a, a sort of a context that everybody can relate to. And I think military is one of them is when during the D-Day landings, the individual soldier was focused on, on, on a level of aggregation in terms of they were looking at their, you know, maybe their platoon or their, their unit of two men who were trying to survive a t- typical fight. The, the generals at the top, however, were more concerned with the, the larger aggregate problems. They, they didn't have time to be concerned about what's happening to Soldier X um, on such and such a beach at such and such time. It, it takes both. And I think that in the same way, we need to create data systems that satisfy all levels of aggregation, such that the payer systems can get something valuable out of it, um, the, the people at the regional level can get something valuable out of it. But I would advocate that First and foremost, it really needs to center on the needs that define that provider, uh, that healthcare provider and patient relationship. I can't say that enough. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, it, it's been really interesting. Uh, well, thanks for having me. Of course. Really enjoyed this. Yeah, and for Lisa, who just grabbed out of her office and said, come on down, but who actually knows quite a lot about how this stuff works. She's the expert on everything. She's the expert. Yeah, hey, we just bring Lisa in. Hey, we can't find anybody else. Lisa knows about that. Let's bring her in. Yeah, that's good. That's awesome. All right, well, thank you guys, and uh, see you next week. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medical and is part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. Rotations is a product of the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine and the Scripps College of Communications. Rotations is hosted by Nasarg Bakshi, produced by Todd Fredericks, audio engineered by Kyle Snyder, and video edited by Brian Plough. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we even pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we do reserve rights to all the content. You may reuse Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without the express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as a source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments or suggestions that you might have about how we make the show better, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspcast, or by visiting mediamedicine.com and putting the word rotations in the subject line.